This is the Flatlining Podcast. During the pandemic, we saw the absurdity of tying healthcare to employer-based coverage. Some 27 million people lost their jobs, and when they lost their jobs, they lost their health care. Why is it, in fact, that we are spending over $12,000 a year on health care, twice as much as our Canadian friends, the French, British countries all over the world, while we live shorter lives, and in many cases, our health care outcomes are not as good? How does that happen? everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with us, as he has been, is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you? I'm doing great. I hope you are as well. I am doing well. It's good to talk to you again, and I'm excited, sort of, to be talking about what we're doing this week, and that's because we're talking about the monstrosity that is uh, Medicare for all. And if you're wondering why we're talking about this in a midterm election year and not a presidential election, it's because Bernie Sanders has brought it back. He reintroduced it to Congress a few weeks ago as the Medicare for All Act of 2022. We're going to be doing a deep dive into that today, talking about what some of the things that this law does that are slightly different from what his previous iterations of the law of the bill was, and uh, some interesting takeaways that we had, plus some testimony from the Hill that we want to share with you uh, that will provide a perhaps a different perspective from what we might share uh, here on the program. So that's all coming up. But first, we're going to do the news. COVID-19 cases are continuing to rise this spring, and new federal data is showing that among the vaccinated, breakthrough cases are most likely among those who have had a booster shot. That's compared to unboosted Americans. This new data does not mean that boosters are somehow increasing the risk, but rather the rates of death and hospitalizations are still the lowest among boosted Americans. For the week of April 23rd, the CDC said that COVID-19 infections among boosted Americans was 119 per 100,000 people. Genetic analysis of the recent monkeypox cases suggests that there have been two distinct strains in the United States. This means that the virus could have been spreading through the U.S. for an undetected amount of time. Many of the current U.S. cases were caused by the same strain as recent cases in Europe, but a few show a different strain. Both strains were identified in cases in the U.S. last year. A visitor at Wayne UNC Healthcare Hospital in Goldsboro, North Carolina, was shot over the weekend, prompting a lockdown at that hospital for nearly an hour. That shooting was the result of an accidental discharge of a firearm, and the victim sustained non-life-threatening injuries. It comes after many hospitals are on high alert after the shooting at a Tulsa, Oklahoma hospital last week, which took the life of a doctor and three others. That shooting, according to investigators, was motivated by the shooter's pain following a back surgery and an addiction to an unnamed pain medication. And the California legislature has voted to approve a bill that designates the spread of COVID-19 misinformation by a member of its medical board an act of misconduct. This means that the members of the Medical Board of California and the Osteopathic Medical Board of California can face disciplinary action for spreading such information. Before a member can be disciplined, the boards will decide whether the physician departed from standards of care and whether the conduct resulted in harm to a patient's health. 
The bill still needs to pass the California Senate and will need to be signed by the governor to become law. For more headlines and analysis delivered to your email address weekly, sign up for the Friday Pulse Check at flatlining.net. My conservative friends are supposed to worry about how much money we spend, right? That's what being a conservative is about. And I share some of that, you know, I like to spend money. One of the things, I, I was kind of a cheapskate mayor and, and try to continue to do that. So I just don't understand why my Republican friends are not jumping up and down and saying, Bernie, we're with you. It's a little bit crazy that we're spending twice as much per capita on health care as the people of other nations. Senator Bernie Sanders from May 12 of this year during a congressional hearing where he discussed uh, Medicare for all. And that's what we're talking about today. And Ron, it's is it true that that's really what we spend compared to other countries? Yeah, yeah, we, we spend about uh, $12,000 per capita on healthcare in this country. And most other countries spend, you know, six, five, six, seven thousand dollars. So, yeah, we are about double the spend per capita than than most other nations. Is there a primary reason? I know we've talked about this before, but I suppose what is the primary reason for that? And, and why is it that uh, conservatives aren't jumping up and down about it? Well, I think it's there's there's two main causes to it. Um, one, it's a very different product. Okay, Comparing healthcare delivery in this country to almost any other country is like trying to sort of say, well, why should a Ferrari cost more than a Chevy? Well, it's a different product. Okay, um, We have much greater access um, to really the highest levels of quality of care in this country than you would have in any other country. So that's half of it. The other half of it is a huge part of why we spend so much money in this country is we are incredibly unhealthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are we just like go out of our way to try to kill ourselves in this country because we're the richest nation in the world. We lead the world in diabetes by far. We lead the world in, you know, we're second in the world in substance abuse, um, only behind Russia, and that's only because alcoholism is con- included in it. You know, we lead the world in obesity. We lead the world in, um, we're, we're one of the top nations in smoking, you know, of the developed nations. So, mm-hmm. you know, we start out with a very expensive um, patient who's doing everything they can to, to damage their health. Um, and then we have incredible access to highest quality and, and real-time healthcare, et cetera. So it's a little bit disingenuous to just say, well, we're, we're spending twice as much as other countries for the same thing we aren't. Okay, it's different right. product, different input. And as, as we talked about before, it's, you said it's something like the top 5% spend most more than half of healthcare or are the cause of more than half the healthcare? Yeah, 5% of our population chew up half of all the dollars. The bottom 50% of the population chew up less than 5% of the dollars. So um, there's a huge part of our population that really consumes very little health care. They're young, they're healthy, et cetera. And there's a very expensive 5%. These are the chronically ill and the very ill. You know, we, we spend a lot of money on, let's say, end-stage life cancer treatments, et cetera, that other countries just wouldn't. There wouldn't be that that spending for it. We spend a lot of money on people with very long-term debilitating diseases like MS. Some of that money would be things other countries wouldn't spend. And we have to deal with the chronically ill, which are many times, you know, self-induced, uh, the obesity, you know, diabetic patients, et cetera. So 
Well, uh, Senator Sanders' solution to this, as it has been for a very long time now, has been to institute some sort of single-payer health care system in the United States. And as he did that this year, he introduced the Medicare for All of 2022 Act. And real quick, before we dive into your takeaways, Ron, I'll just give a quick uh, high level of what this means. It's... It, if it were to pass, this is all assuming that it were to pass and then be signed into law. If it were to pass and be signed into law, it would begin in the fourth calendar year after it was enacted. So it wouldn't start right away, um, although I don't know how confident we would be about something like that, given that No Surprises wasn't even ready by by the deadline. It would uh, obviously put everyone at a Medicare rate. Uh, it has some provisions for saying you can negotiate, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes. It establishes um, more offices in the government, including an office for health equity, which would uh, we've talked briefly about how why that really shouldn't be a priority, but they seem to have it as one. Uh, obviously, it abolishes original Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, uh, federal employees, health benefits program. It makes it illegal to sell private insurance. It makes it illegal to have uh, employer provider insurance that duplicates the same things. It does have a uh, interesting transition period where it's got um, it introduces a temporary public option, and also introduces a temporary Medicare buy-in with uh, increasingly dec- with decreasing age limits uh, as it goes along until Medicare for all is implemented. Now, Ron, you had some time to look at this today, and I did as well, and you you had some interesting takeaways, and the first one was the transfer of the cost, because now instead of paying a healthcare premium and paying out-of-pocket or in a deductible and having an out-of-pocket max, we would now be paying uh, for our healthcare through taxes. Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, you know, one of the challenges that would happen with something like this, especially given the size of it, remember, our healthcare expenditures in this country, if it were a gross domestic product, would be the fourth largest country in the world. Okay, so we're talking mm-hmm. about $4 trillion a year, a massive amount of money. Of that, roughly $3 trillion are paid through either employers or individuals, you know, buying their insurance in an employer-based system around exchanges. That cost right now that's being borne by either an individual or an employer has to be transferred over to a governmental cost which means it has to be paid for through taxes. And so there's a huge challenge on how to make that transfer and how do you decide who gets taxed and how much? So let's say, let me give you a perfect example. Sure. Let's say the government said, look, we're not gonna tax any employer under 25 employees because to a large degree, most of those employers don't provide insurance for their employees and taxing small employers is a great way to put them out of business. Okay, mm-hmm. that would be a fairly reasonable thing to say. It's a, you got only big employers are going to be taxed. Well, I'm a small employer, and I provide insurance for all of my employees, and I pay for all of it. Mm-hmm. Last year for Fulcrum, I paid $126,000 in insurance premiums. Now, in a Medicare for all, I'm going to win because suddenly I have none of that expense. Okay. Right. Now I could turn around and give that money to my employees, or I could put it in my pocket. And, and should I win as a successful small employer or not? So it, it's not that what I'd be doing is inherently wrong. It's just how do you figure that out? How do you beat that challenge? On the other hand, you've got very large employers who maybe are providing very limited self-funded benefits, and suddenly they're going to face this potentially huge tax. Many employers right now, that's enough to maybe put them out of business or push them to do more things overseas mm-hmm. or, you know, so... How you transfer potentially 
$1.3 trillion into a tax and not have winners and losers is impossible. Plus, our government is notoriously bad at taxing at the level it needs to for healthcare. Mm -hmm. So the easy thing to do would be to transfer all that, but not pay for it. Transfer three trillion in expenses and only one trillion in tax increases. Well, then we're gonna create a huge problem from a deficit. So just that financing shift alone would be sort of incredibly difficult and mind boggling. And we don't have a very good track record in doing it well. Now, right now, does Medicare run it as, as at a deficit in the current way that it's run? Well, not only does it run as a deficit, it, it has a date when it's going to go under. Um, they project the solvent. Now, this is this is back to this whole um, the government term of, of unfunded mandates. Okay, mm-hmm. um, the last number in 2019, and this is from the CBO, the projection of when Medicare would go insolvent is 2026. Okay. That's not too far from now. I mean, that's going to be under the next president's watch, okay? Um, We're getting real close to that date. So, um, yeah, Medicare runs as a a, a deficit, and and it's projected to go insolvent. So this this $3 trillion number, where does that number come from? So roughly speaking, and the number changed a little bit, but roughly speaking in this country, if you include all financing sources, et cetera, all types of healthcare, we spend close to $4 trillion a year in healthcare. Roughly one trillion of that, a little more than a trillion of that, is governmental spending, either through Medicare, mm-hmm. Medicaid, the you know, the Affordable Care Act, CHIP, all that stuff. Um, and the other three trillion, little under three trillion, is employer-based or individuals buying, or state governments um, paying for their own employees, that kind of thing. So, in that cost, how much of that is actual medical care, and how much of it is? Um, administrative costs, billing, so, billing companies, et cetera. Yeah, it's it's tough to to get a true um, admin versus most people think it's roughly 70-30, that about 30% of the cost has to do with administration. Now, um, that's different than like overhead because overhead includes hospital building, et cetera. But administration right. meaning the, you know, the non the, – clinical care, the paperwork, the financing authorizations, and 70% for actual direct care delivery. If you don't mind, I'm, this is where I'll, I'll jump in and I'll play a clip from this uh, congressional hearing back in May. Uh, this is uh, Senator Sanders asking, uh, he asked a question to the group. It was answered by Dr. Adam Gaffney, uh, who is an MD and has an MPH. He's an assistant Harvard University professor, and he's the former president of Physicians for a National Health Program. And uh, he was asked this question about how many uh, billers we have in the United States. Uh, let me ask you this. Do, does anybody have any idea? We, we've talked about not having enough doctors and nurses, etc. How many people do we have in the system who do nothing else but bill us to drive us crazy that we have, we're late on our bills? Anyone know the number, though? There's, I don't know if Adam has, a, has Adam, an Do you know, Dr. Gaffney? Um, I don't have the personnel number, but I do have the overall expenditures of, our, of what we spend on administration. And that's one third of every healthcare dollar in the United States to administration, double the proportion of Canada. So we are spending hundreds of billions of dollars on folks who bill us and drive us crazy, but do not provide any health care to us. Now, obviously, 
what you mentioned is we, we do spend money on billers and stuff, but this isn't going to go away if we switch to Medicare for all. You still need people to process claims and, and reimbursement and all this other stuff. Well, I, I think what they're I think what they're talking about, and, and there's a potential for some cost administrative savings if you went to a single payer system, is that they've got this concept that there would be this capitation or this budget transfer that mm-hmm. a hospital in a regional system would suddenly just get these monthly checks from the government at a fixed rate to provide all the care that they need. Now, if that's the case, then yeah, there wouldn't necessarily be claims being billed back and forth, and that might reduce the number of, of employees. Now, there still would have to be people tracking all that. I mean, right. y- you know, the internal revenue service, just to track how much taxes are owed and collect that money, has 75,000 employees and a $12 billion a year budget, okay? Mm-hmm. So there would have to be people tracking all of that um, transfer of reimbursement. And then, yes, you're right. There would still be some amount of fee-for-service, even in Bernie's plan, some from physicians, some with rural hospitals, et cetera, and those claims would have to be processed through. But let's say, for example, and I think this is a ridiculous overstatement, mm-hmm. You know, let's say we could cut the admin cost in half from 30% to 15%, okay? So, fine. Let's say we save, you know, 15% of $4 trillion. All right, that's still a fair amount of money. That's, you know, what, mm-hmm. uh, $600 billion a year. Um, that's not enough to balance the budget, and that doesn't nearly offset some of the other things would go way up in cost, like all pent-up demand and all these right. new people with yep. cards, et cetera. So, it's a nice soundbite way to say we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars and that would go away, but it's not real. It, right. it wouldn't go away. Well, I'm glad I got your, your reaction on that. And I'm glad you also tied in a, a reimbursement a little bit. Talk a bit, little bit about how Bernie's Medicare for All plan would do reimbursement for, I, I guess, starting with facilities like uh, hospitals and, and ASCs. So the, the concept is to get away from fee-for-service medicine and give them a fixed budget amount, okay, where they would transfer and say to Acme Hospital in, in Smithtown, and I'm just making something up, here's your payment, here's your budget, okay, we're going to pay you this monthly, you use that to provide all the, the care that's necessary for the people in your catchment area, you hire nurses, you build buildings, you do everything you need with that, okay, and that way there wouldn't be an incentive to overcare and they, they would always be paid. There's this concept that then they would require a certain level of nursing and all that other stuff. So that's how potentially hospitals would get paid. Now, we have that system in this country right now. Mm-hmm. It's called the VA system. Right. And it didn't work real well because their budgets didn't keep up with their cost increases and then we developed wait lists and people couldn't get care, which is what happens when you have a governmental entity or any entity on a fixed budget and they can't expand supply or capacity because their budget is fixed, but demand increases. Mm-hmm. So that's how hospitals would potentially get paid. And sure, it, it's an easy way to pay and it could control cost, but it has a side effect that we've already seen in the VA system and it isn't very pretty. Talk to me about a little a little bit about how reimbursement would work for individual providers or provider groups, like your primary care physician. 
So there, there isn't a whole lot of detail around that. Their thought is that generally it would start out as fee-for-service. They would try to move some things like primary care physicians into more of a fixed fee or a, a, a capitated model. But let's assume that it's straight fee-for-service for most independent physicians. All right, here creates a different problem. Right now on average, and this is from a Kaiser Foundation study, mm-hmm. on average, physicians through commercial insurance get paid 1.5 times what Medicare pays them for the same service on average. Okay? okay. So if Bernie wants to start out and say, okay, we're going to pay all physicians at the Medicare rate, that means on average, physicians just took a 50% cut on for what most of them is roughly half of their population. That means roughly a 25% cut in revenue with very little, if any, cut in expenses, which means doctors' incomes just took it in the pants. Right. Okay. Now, the big concern there is a huge portion of our practicing physicians right now, like over 45%, are over 55 years old. Mm -hmm. They're close to retirement. Many of them, the only reason they don't retire is they don't know what they would do with their time. So what are you going to do with this excellent physician who's got wonderful experience, who is 62 and still practicing, and suddenly overnight you show him this massive pay cut, and he says, fine, I'm out. I retire. Mm-hmm. If even a small portion of those people retire early, we don't have enough doctors to staff what we what the demand would be. At the very time, we'd be increasing demand by giving everybody free health care. We could create wait lines or wait lists that would make Canada look better than right. what we would be. So that's a huge concern on the physician side. You, you know, it's interesting you say that because I want to stick on that that age point for just a minute and, and, and point out that in this congressional hearing – the, the people that, that Senator Sanders brought in to testify in favor of Medicare for All from various different perspectives, despite the fact that they were either MDs or, or, or RNs, they none of them appeared very old, which I'm wondering then if, if why, why do you think that might be that they might be more interested in Medicare for All than, say, your older population of doctors? Well... I actually think it's it's not so much an age thing as it is understanding, you know, their point of reference or their back to, background. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, perspective is a wonderful thing. Um, now, if you look at, and the, I know both of those doctors by reputation, they're smart people. They, mm-hmm. Their heart's in the right place. Okay. The both that, that testified. Um, one of them has worked pretty much his whole life in an academic setting, which means he gets a paycheck from an entity, whether he sees you know, 10 patients or 50 patients. Right. Um, he's not an independent physician. He's never really never has been. He works in an academic setting. And that's great. So his income is not really tied to whether or not this passes or doesn't. And and the other one worked in a lot of public health setting. I think he was worked in Detroit in their health department or something. Mm-hmm. So um, but physicians by nature, most of the physicians I deal with, went into medicine because they care about people, they help people. And it's easy to see somebody who hasn't seen sort of what the potential business side of this looks like and what it would do to the independent practice medicine, who's been in that academic or governmental setting, say, look, I want to help the most people possible. And the way to do that is make sure that everyone has access to healthcare. I don't fault anybody for wanting to make sure that every single individual has access to great healthcare. That mm-hmm. is a laudable goal. That's right up there with making sure that everyone's fed and everyone's safe. And everyone's healthy and you know mm-hmm. but but they view it from a perspective that doesn't understand what happens to that 
practicing obstetrician or internal medicine or neurologist or surgeon who says, great, you do this and I'm done. I can't, I can't pay the bills anymore. Um, and so I'm out, you know, that they just don't sort of have, I think have that perspective. Now, I do think it's interesting to point out, you pointed out the Dr. Abdul El Saeed, uh, who is a MD and he's got a doctorate in public health as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ran the, uh, the Detroit health department. Now, granted he left the Detroit Bahar- health department in 2017 to run for governor as a Democrat here in Michigan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do want to point anecdotally, I do want to point out, and I'm not, he, I'm not saying he causes, but Detroit was one of the worst places in the country for COVID with mm-hmm. the high rates of cases here in this country. So I, I, I think you're right that it's about perspective. You know, it's the, I'm from the government and I'm here to help when in places like Detroit, the government botched it because of their health department. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, absolutely. And, and again, I don't think, and we talked about the VA system earlier, mm-hmm. the vast majority of the people that work in the VA system want to help people. It's Absolutely. not that they wanted to fail. It's not that they liked the idea of waitlist. It's they were dealt with a limited budget and they were doing the best that they could. You know, I don't think that he wanted to see Detroit fail in the COVID. It's the nature of the beast. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's why um, a lot of the government, not just in this country, delivered healthcare has other issues. Um mm-hmm. That, that we don't have in a lot of places here. When we talked a little bit about reimbursement, and you mentioned that it would be a significant pay cut for a lot of uh, physicians and, and likely for a lot of hospitals as well. Uh, Senator Sanders and, and some of his allies might argue that they've included a provision that you can negotiate higher rates. Um, Fulcrum Strategies is in, the, is in the business of negotiation. So what is your initial reaction to the idea of negotiating with the regional director of Medicare for any market? Well, yeah. So there's a couple of things that gives me the heebie to jeebies about that statement. <laughs> First of all, negotiating against the only person who can by law purchase your service. Okay. I'm a skilled negotiator. I've been negotiating for 36 years. I consider myself pretty good. Mm-hmm. I'm going to lose that negotiating that negotiation 11 times out of 10. Um, talk about having a monopoly. You know, the other right. side is the only one that you can buy that can buy your service, and you have to you have to sell your service by law. Boy, you're not going to negotiate with them. You're going to take whatever it is they tell you you're going to take. The other thing that gives me the absolute nightmare about this is think about the power that that person has. We get concerned in this country about lobbyists who, you know, funnel significant amount of money to our legislators. We get concerned about people in in cabinet positions, you know, being influenced, okay? A cabinet position on the federal, you know, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, not a regional right. director. Secretary mm-hmm. of Health and Human Services gets paid $140,000 a year. This regional director is going to get paid a lot less than that, and they're going to have the purse strings for hundreds of billions of dollars. Now, you tell me that isn't fraught with the idea of some hospital system trying to figure out a backdoor way to hire their wife in a very lucrative position so that they get a little bit more something, something. I mean, oh, my God. Talk about the potential for bad things happening. That right there is a perfect recipe. How do you think that that would be set up anyway to have, I mean, we have, obviously we already have regional offices for all of the other branches of government, you know, all the law enforcement agencies, social security, et cetera. Would it be, do you think it would be set up sort of like social security where you have offices in all these different markets and then 
or rather, I guess, how would they determine what a specific market is? So um, I think they would um, take, there's already currently for Medicare, the, the state's are divided up into areas for how physicians get paid. I think they would collapse some of those areas into regions. Okay. You know, California, because it's big enough, might be a region. Right. You know, you might take some of the Southeast states and lump them together, and they would create these sort of regions and then create a whole new department for handling these budgetary requests. Um, you know, prior to years and years ago, hospitals used to to based on how they would get paid, submit Medicare cost reports mm -hmm. to Medicare that would show their costs. So I envisioned that happening again. Talk about now an explosion in admin people. Right. Because these are a lot of accountants creating these cost reports to justify their reimbursement, going to other accountants who are going to have to look through them and discover whether they're right or wrong to determine how that fits within a budget and how much money they're going to get. So there's going to be this whole morass of admin costs doing all that stuff even worse than it used to be. And in all likelihood, they're gonna be starting out with less money than is really needed. So you've got to, you, you have not enough food to feed everybody at the table and you gotta figure out how much each person at the table gets doled out of that food. You know, talk about a, a nightmare of a process. Mm -hmm. um, that, I mean, that's how, that concerns me about that whole approach. Well, and you know, thinking about it too, you have, as you mentioned, you have the states, and then some of the states are divided into localities. You have, you know, in North Carolina, you have Raleigh and Charlotte, and you've mm -hmm. got the different ones in South Carolina, going down to Georgia, Atlanta, Florida, etc. I'm imagining that in the case of something like the the Southeast, you would have probably from North Carolina to Florida all lumped into Atlanta. How much? Di how different is the cost of doing healthcare? In North Carolina than it is in Atlanta right now. Well, and and, and even within that, how different is it from Atlanta to Macon to Austin? Right. You know, I yeah. mean, mm -hmm. you know, each hospital is going to have an entirely different environment, supply costs, labor costs, the severity of what they do, their need for new equipment, and all of that is I envision sort of being built up into these reports that they send to the government to justify that they need a fifty percent increase. That all those reports are going to have to be reviewed by somebody almost like the biggest budget spreadsheet you've ever seen mm -hmm. and determine, well, you've asked for 50%, I'm going to give you 2%. And, you know, it's going to be a huge game of how much can you get over the government or, or overstate your hand. Everybody's going to be trying to get as much as they can. So right. it just, it, it's, it, it's fraught with inefficiencies. And I think it'll start out with not enough for anybody. Um, and then what do you do? You know, Right now, critical access hospitals have a little bit of an upper upper hand when it comes to negotiating um, with with payers. Do you think that that's going to go away, and instead you'll see the upper hand go towards large hospital systems in in major urban areas? Well, I think um, a lot of it depends on first of all how much of this process is. Um, formula driven by law and how much of it is left to what we typically see in politics. Okay. So, you know, think about it. You're, you're a representative from a rural part of North Carolina and you want to get reelected, which is what everybody wants. That's why everybody's there. Well, if you can figure out some way to get your rural hospital more money, well, that's a great way to get reelected whether they need it or not. I mean, that's right. why we've got these bridges to nowhere and airports that have one flight a day yep. because some favorite senator or representative, that was their pet project. So, 
you know, a lot of things in this, the, you know, they say the devil's in the detail. Well, the details aren't in this bill, how a lot of this stuff's going to happen. And it could be hugely important because one rural hospital could then be overfunded and be a wonderful place to be and another rural hospital not able to function. Mm-hmm. I remember back in 2018, reviewing a lot of the, the Medicare for All proposals that were in Congress. And and there were there was one that, I and I can't remember who introduced it, but there was one that was only about four pages long. And I was concerned with the fact that you thought you could rebuild American healthcare in, in four pages. And this one's, a, this one's a little bit longer than that, but there is a lot of it that is left up to the Department of Health and Human Services. How much power does this bill give to the Secretary of Health and Human Services? And how do you think that will affect change from administration to administration? Well, yeah, so a couple things here. First of all, it gives a huge amount of power to the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Um, on how all this stuff gets divided. I mean, that starts to become a, you know, this, this if passed would almost put the Secretary of Health and Human Services on the same level as the Fed chair as far mm-hmm. as power uh, in the U.S. economy. The second thing to understand, and this is I find really interesting, let's say this bill got passed this year. That means the next president's going to have to deal with it. Right. The four years of transition period to me is not accidental. I do think because... Bernie believes this, and I respect him for his beliefs, and I think he does understand you're not going to be able to do this overnight. So I think part of this four-year thing is that it's going to take that long to transition. The other part of it is, well, we can't be blamed for it because when it goes live, if it fails, whoever it is there, whether it's Democrat or Republican, say, I didn't do this mess. I'm just implementing it. Right. So it's it's an interesting sort of you know DC shuffle. Let me pass something today that somebody tomorrow is going to have to do and pay for. And the bill is woefully low on how they're going to pay for it, mm-hmm. you know. And it's interesting too. You you mentioned that because no surprises kind of had the same deal. It was passed by mm-hmm. a former administration and it came into law under the Biden administration. But rather than you know a specific few specialties of, of physicians and payers, this is going to affect everyone when it comes into power. Yeah, I mean, no surprises affected it. Really, a very small portion of the population and the delivery system. This is everything. Do you think um, the way No Surprises was enacted could be a tell for how Medicare for All might be implemented? Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Especially if, you know, let's let's just paint the picture. This got passed. And let's say it got passed. Let's say that the Democrats suspended the filibuster and they jammed it through along a party vote and Harris cast the deciding vote in the Senate. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, Let's say that in the upcoming midterms, the Republicans take control of the Senate, but not the House. I'm just painting a picture. And let's say sure. in the next election, they take control of the White House and the House. Now they control everything, and they've got a bill that none of them wanted, nobody voted for, and nobody liked. But if they can't repeal it, they've got to implement it. Mm-hmm. How excited do you think the new Secretary of Health and Human Services under a Republican president with a Republican con- Congress is going to be to enact this law? Not much. And so it's probably going to be done poorly. And even done well, this thing is going to have an enormous number of problems of past. So to have any chance of not being a complete disaster, it would have to be done flawlessly. Well, there's no way that a new Republican Health and Human Services Secretary is going to have the energy behind doing something like this flawlessly. Obviously, when we get uh, Medicare for All passed, it's going to be free out of pocket for everyone. Hmm. How is this going to affect demand for health care in the U.S.? 
oh, we're going to see a huge spike in demand. Now, some of it is going to be extremely beneficial, meaning, let me explain. So there are people out there right now that don't get basic screenings, like screening mammograms, because they, they can't afford even the small copay, or they don't do their annual physician visit because they can't afford the copay. So that stuff would be good, you know, getting those people in for preventative services. We also know from the insurance industry that there is a direct relationship between patient cost, copays and coinsurance, and demand. And some of that demand is really unnecessary demand. So people are going to suddenly start running to the doctor for every little thing because it's free. Um, I mean, it's why people overeat at the free buffet in Vegas, you know, right. not because they're hungry, but because it's free. It's, you know. Um, and then you're going to have all these people who had no or little insurance, you know, the uninsured, who suddenly are going to have free insurance and they're going to go in. Um, and so we're going to have this spike in demand. Again, it's not all bad. Some of it's bad. Some of it is great that we take care of their healthcare issues, but we better figure out a way to not only, you know, handle the, the, the huge spike in need and demand, but also how we're going to pay for it. That needs to be factored in. So in addition to this demand, one of the reasons it'll go up is, is that it's going to be open. And this was interesting to me because this is where, contrary to what Senator Sanders says that he wanted to do with having it mirror Canada and in the United Kingdom, is that this is open to every resident in the United States. And they left the definition for resident up to the Department of Health and Human Services. So obviously you can imagine that under a Democratic administration, residents going to be anyone who is within the borders of the United States. And under a Republican administration, it might be citizen or lawful uh, permanent resident with a green card. How do you think that's going to affect demand as well? Well, yeah. And so you're right. And not only could could that affect demand, that definition of resident could change as administration changes. So you could have people popping in and out of the system. You know, one administration says resident means you live here, don't care if it's documented or legally. The other one says you got to have, you know, you got to be a citizen or a green card. Um, but we have a problem in this country right now with immigration because we're such a wealthy country. People want to come here. I get it. If I were poor in, one of, in Mexico or some of those, I'd want to come here too. If I couldn't get a job in Mexico, I'd want to. Imagine if we just tack free healthcare on top of that. Now there's all the more reason to go here. You know, let's say you're, you know, you're, you're, 85-year-old grandmother is very sick and can't get her medicines in Mexico. Well, now she becomes somebody that you want to try to get across the border because she can get them in this country. So, you know, that has also an uptick in demand depending on how we handle that definition of resident. How do you think this will change or will it change, do you think, immigration into the United States? Well, I think it's just going to make it much more attractive to come here. It's another reason for people to want to come here. You know, right now, most of the reason is for employment and economic advantage. You start adding free access to the world's greatest healthcare delivery system, and it adds another reason to want to be here. We're going to see, you know, um, not economic immigration. We're going to start to see clinically, uh, clinical integration, uh, immigration, you know, where people are trying to come here just for that reason. Mm -hmm. We could see, you know, immigration happening from Canada. You know, I find out I have cancer, I'm on a waiting list, or I find out I need a transplant, I'm on a waiting list. You know, immigrate across, you know, just get across the bridge and get into America and, you know, rent an apartment. Suddenly I get access to all this care. Right. How do you think this will affect um, drug innovation, Medicare for all? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a touchy one because I, I understand the attack on drug companies and their profits, and especially when you look at what they charge for certain things. I get that. And But the other part of that is those profits drive innovation. You know, the reason why drug companies spend so much money on research and is because they know there's a payoff. If there's no payoff, nobody's going to do it. Um, and that's what, you know, we see in a lot of other industries. Um, I was just, I saw an article and I, the other day and it's, it's a small study. And so it's not significant yet, but it's the first time this ever happened. It's a new medication in a very small controlled stage one, phase one clinical trial for, I think, rectal cancer. Everyone, 100% of the people in the study all went into complete remission, meaning the cancer is no longer detectable. That's never happened. Now, what they're saying here is this could be, and I emphasize could, a lot more says, this could be a pill that cures that cancer. Well, there's a lot of research and, and cost that goes into developing that pill, and they know that if they get the home run and cure that cancer, they're going to make a ton of profit on it. Well, if all that goes away, are that those pills going to be developed? Uh, it's going to have so it's something to be very, very careful about. Mm-hmm. Now, this has all been leading up to one, the last question from your takeaways that I wanted to ask about, and that's what happens to quality and access to healthcare in the United States. And I guess we should go ahead and start with quality first. So, well, first of all, I think that the two are are highly related quality and access Um, because part of quality is access is being able to get diagnostic stuff done quickly before the tumor has gone too far, the cancer has spread treatment quickly, et cetera. So um, I think that if we passed this version of Medicare for all, we are going to see a massive reduction in both quality and access to what are really sort of scary and unacceptable levels in this country. Um, It will, you know, break the delivery system. It will cause a reduction in supply of the delivery system, namely of physicians, but also many other things at the very time when there's this massive increase in demand. Um, We saw a preview of it with COVID, Mm -hmm. not anywhere close to what this could be, where hospitals had to flex and got stretched. um, That shows just how tenuous um, our delivery system's capacity is and can be. And it worked. We stretched and we handled it. Mm-hmm. But imagine something stretching to the breaking point. Imagine being um, going from a place like you and I are where we've got good insurance, et cetera. We've got a card or having a Medicare card. And you know, when I'm sick, I can call up my doctor and get in reasonably quickly. Imagine being able to call, calling the doctor or a new doctor and them saying, we're not taking any new patients. And for the exist, existing patients, you know, you can be seen, you know, four months from the next full moon. Um, imagine walking to an ER and it's standing room only and the wait, wait time isn't in minutes or hours. It's, you know, a day. Right. Um, those things are, could easily happen in this country. Um, and this is the kind of thing that could sort of break it. You know, it's interesting, and we played this clip at the very beginning of the program. Uh, Bernie Sanders pointed out that in other countries like Canada and the United Kingdom, that they've had conservative governments take over and that they would never think of repealing, you know, their healthcare system in their country because it's so popular. I want to start by asking, is original Medicare, the way we have it now, is that popular in the United States among the population that has access to it? Um, the, the standard, the, the Medicare, standard the Medicare way, yeah, that we yeah. have now. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's very popular. 
um, to be to be honest, the the current um, employer based system is very popular if you poll the people who have it. Um, mm-hmm. You know that was part of the challenge with which what why the first run at um, healthcare reform Hillary Care got killed didn't make it was because you'll lose your doctor you lose your health care it was a challenge for the affordable care act that they navigated correctly so you know a lot of this has to do with whatever system you're in for the most part with developed nations is a popular system um it's what you know you know the change is scary so you know yeah if you poll canadians it's all they know their system is pretty popular if you poll them so it's great britain so it's 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 what they know right um Polar citizens, you know, what we know is also very popular. So to say that they, these other countries would never get rid of it because it's popular and make the conclusion that because it's better, no, it's popular because it's what they know. Right, right. You know? And that and that was the point I was going to make at is that if, if we pass Medicare for all here, it would be popular and the systems that we have now are, are popular because it's what we right. have and, and, right. and what we're used to. And right. in a certain weird sense, it's what works for us. Yeah, it's it's so it's it's what you know. It's what works for you. There are a lot of things we do in this country that other countries don't do that they would look at us as being really strange, and vice versa. You know, it, it's again, it's it's what you know. And the other big part of why you know Canada or Great Britain would never dream of trying to overhaul their system is, you know, it's that old thing about changing horse midwater. You know, midstream. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard another gentleman one time who was talking about, um, you know, changing the, a flat tire on a car is not hard. Now, it's infinitely harder if you're driving 80 miles an hour down the highway and try to do it then. Right. And we can't take a pause and go, okay, everybody, nobody get healthcare for a year while we dismantle this system and build a new one. Okay. So that's part of the reason why no other country would think about dismantling their system. Making that kind of change while you're doing it every day is enormously hard. Right. I want to take some time now, if you don't mind, to go through um, some some of the testimony that was given about Medicare sure. for all. Uh, and we, we played a few clips from these and I'll, I'll re- refrain from repeating duplicates. And I, but I want to start with uh, Dr. Adam Gaffney, who we mentioned earlier, he's assistant university, assistant Harvard university professor and the former president of physicians for a national health program. Well, actually let me start with that. Why do you think that there are doctors that are interested in a single payer system here in the United States? Oh, I think it's it's incredibly logical. How hard would it be to be a physician and you've devoted so much of your life to helping people and having a patient who says, I, I know that drug will help me, doctor, but I can't afford it, or having a patient who can't keep coming in because they can't afford it. I mean, what you want to do is give your very best, the best medical care you can for your patients, and you realize that some of those patients for financial reasons can't afford it, and then somebody comes and says, hey, doc, I can solve that. Let's just do Medicare for all, especially if they start feeding you some of the lines of crap of, it won't cost any more money. It's easy. Everybody mm-hmm. else does it. They're better. I completely understand the, the, the desire to make sure every one of your patients gets your very best and they get there. I don't have any problem with that at all. I understand the desire for it. It's just... You know, it, it's it's nirvana and fantasy land because the reality is we can't afford all that and it would be very difficult to do. So let's get into his, his testimony here. He was asked by uh, Senator Sanders whether or not, we just talked about how it's actually fairly popular in the U.S., US whether or not the employee-based system uh, that we have right now makes sense uh, from a medical standpoint. 
Well, it doesn't make sense either medically or financially. Um, for one thing, you constantly hear the critique of Medicare for all that it would take away people's private health insurance. As you said, people are losing private health insurance all the time because they got fired, they got laid off, they turned 65 and gained access to Medica Medicare. Um, so it doesn't make sense. Um, furthermore, that sort of churn, as we call it, the constant shifting in and out of uh, medical plans, healthcare plans, has really adverse consequences for patient care. You could imagine if you have complex medical needs, having to see a number of doctors, having to go to particular hospitals, all of a sudden your healthcare plan change. Now you need to see all new professionals. If, assuming you still have a new plan, you may be entirely uninsured and unable to see anyone at all. Ron, what's your initial reaction to that, and and how, and as a follow up, how true is it that that is the case for many Americans that they have to um, do multiple tests over and over again when they switch insurance? Well, um, first of all, there are grains of truth in a lot of what he said, um, absolutely, but it's it's on the margin or anecdotal more than the majority. And, and that's the issue. So absolutely, are there patients who, because they switch insurance plans, have to start over with a different drug, the fail first stuff, or the different plan has a different network and now they got to change? Absolutely, it happens. And for those people, clinically, that's not very good, okay? And, and yes, Medicare for All would solve that problem, but that's not the majority of the people. It's a small minority of the people. Mm -hmm. um, even during the pandemic, it wasn't the majority of the people, okay? So there are grains of truth in what he's saying, and it makes sense. It just doesn't work in sort of the macro setting because um, it just doesn't happen to the majority of the people. So it's an, an exception becoming the rule. Yeah, and, and like, for example, when he talked about losing your plan and, and when you turn 65, well, almost none of the physicians that I know of who would take a Blue Cross, United, and Aetna, Cigna, whoever those commercial plans are, don't also take Medicare. So when you age to 65, you don't have to switch doctors. Yes, you, you switch different insurance carriers from, you know, Blue Cross to Medicare, for example. You don't have to switch doctors. That's, mm -hmm. you know, that one to me is a complete falsehood. Do you have any other key takeaways you want to you mention from uh, Dr. Gaffney? No, I mean, again, I, I, I understand his desire. I think it's laudable. I think we should be looking under the current system and say, how do we provide everybody with healthcare and coverage? That's, mm -hmm. that's not a bad thing to do. I just don't think this is the right way to do it. Also, there was uh, nurse Bonnie Castillo. She's a registered nurse uh, and she's the executive director of the national nurses United and is, and of the California nurse association. And she was asked how Medicare for all, I'm glad you mentioned COVID. She was asked how Medicare for all would have benefited uh, Americans and the U.S. healthcare system during the COVID pandemic. We had Medicare for all before this pandemic started. Hospitals would have been better prepared to respond. There would have been a system in place for years. Hospital corporations have used and relied on this just-in-time uh, staffing and uh, for supplies. And in most of the countries, hospitals didn't even hire enough nurses for regular patient care day to day, and that's pre-pandemic. Uh, so at OR, didn't, they didn't have enough supplies to for a public health emergency. Through the global budgeting payment mechanism that's in your bill, Senator, hospitals would be required to have the minimum uh, safe minimum nurse staffing levels, and they would be required to have a one-year supply 
of the critical PPE and all the other medical supplies that were needed. So this, our pandemic response would have been much safer for patients and for healthcare workers if we had a Medicare for All system. Now, I didn't see in the Medicare for All bill, so it's possible she's referring to a different bill, requirements about PPE and, and other um, supplies that hospitals need to hold on to. Did you see that in the Medicare for All bill? No, I, I, I don't. I don't think that's in the bill. There, in previous bills, there's been a lot of discussion about having the um, those regional budgets, if you will, um, control things like staffing levels. If you're going to get this budget, you have to have at least you know X number of nurses per bed, et cetera. So I think that's what she's. Referring. I don't. I didn't see it in the bill, and maybe it's in a different draft or whatever. But I understand the concept is then the government would right. not only say, here's how much money you get, and you have to have A, B, and C in order to do this, like a year's supply of PPE or a certain number of nurses per, per bed. I've, and I'm willing to bet, and I'm willing it's safe to assume, I'll give the benefit of the doubt that she's referring to a different uh, Senator Sanders bill, um, although that you're right, that is a, that is something that, that would follow from there. The other person that was there on that panel that, that Senator Sanders asked questions of was Dr. Abdul El Sayed. Uh, we mentioned him earlier. He's an MD and a DPH, a former director of the Detroit Health Department, and he ran for the governor of Michigan back in 2017. He was asked, why is it that we spend more money than other countries and uh, get less quality? Well, we talked a little bit about the tomato scenario and uh, the fact that, you know, in our uh, system, nobody has an incentive to save money. If you're a provider, your incentive is to bill more because you make more. And if you're an insurer, your incentive is to grow your piece of the pie, that 20% that you get to keep, so you have no incentive to keep it down either. And they keep pushing the bill pack on, back onto the rest of us. But because we have so many payers and so many providers, 700 health insurers in, in our society. How many health insurance companies? Right around 700. There is no, not, no one of them has the power to actually rain down the prices, even if they wanted to. And on top of that, you have to have a, a whole bunch of crosstalk, a whole bunch of billers, whether it's on the provider side or the payer side, to be able to make these financial transactions happen. That's overhead in the system. Right, let me that all ask you this. For. So I, first, the, your reaction to whether or not it's uh, providers just simply have an incentive to bill more. Well, so... Uh, Definitely in a fee-for-service environment, an economist would be concerned about the incentives. Okay, great. I get that. That The more you do, the more you make. Okay. Now, if that were truly a big reason that was driving up cost, what we would see on the back end is increases in physician incomes. Okay. Because if they're successful in inflating demand more than they should for financial reasons, what we would see is physician incomes exceeding faster than general inflation. We've not, mm -hmm. not for decades now. So that's one of my, my problems with this idea that it's all physicians driving up, you know, healthcare costs through, and, you know, through financial incentives to overutilize is, well, they're not making, they're not doing it very well because they're not making any more money. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of my problems with that whole premise of it's just the fee for service sort of environment. We work with all of the major payers at Fulcrum Strategies. Do you think that it's fair to say that no one payer has the ability to bring down the cost of healthcare, given the fact that, you know, we look at United's income for the first quarter of 2021 and they had a surplus of something like 
some it was somewhere between four and eight billion dollars. You know, so is it fair to say that that the payers don't have the ability to lower healthcare costs? Well, so the, the other the other problem with that statement is sort of flies in the face of the economic theory of perfect competition. So the economic theories of if if you get monopolies either in supply or purchase, okay, that has an artificially bad influence on what happens with cost or price, okay? And if you have perfect competition where you have a lot of competition, that gets to the most equitable, most efficient distribution of resources and and finances. So, you know, I don't know that you want one insurance company to be able to control so much that they can drive down price because a, I don't think it's going to be seen in overall reductions in healthcare cost. The example you bring up, United, a huge insurance company, has a lot of ability to drive down price. They're massive, and they use it to increase their profit. Mm-hmm. They, they, their, their product isn't significantly cheaper, cheaper than anybody. They just make more money on it. Right. So yeah, I have a huge problem with that that statement as well. Well, you could even say that if if one had the ability to drive down costs, if you take something like Medicare for All, it has the ability to send it through the roof and really inflate the price of what a basic procedure might cost. Well, it can do a number of things. Once you get into a pure monopoly, then you know a number of bad things could happen. So let's say, for example, that in a Medicare-involved environment, and the federal government said, hey, our budget's a little out of whack, so we're going to have a 20% reduction in how much we pay for everything. And we're the government, we're a monopoly, we can do that. You know, mm-hmm. Legally, you have to only buy from us. So there you go, 20% reduction. And then everybody leaves the market. Because the other thing you have to understand on this is this whole thing, there's a labor supply here too. And if the job gets to be too bad or doesn't pay enough, people will stop doing the job. You know, So now what are you going to do? Great. Everybody's got an insurance card and nobody there to provide care. You know, it's interesting too, he mentioned that there's no incentive to save money. And um, we, we've dealt with some Medicaid contracts that do, and even some Medicare Advantage contracts that do have quality incentive programs. Mm-hmm. How much money do those generally save the payer, or the or the in the long run the patients? Yeah, so um, I definitely think there's data that shows that as much as we can logically and reasonably shift away from the fee for service environment to more, you know, shared savings incentive based programs, the better. And, and they do show that they they do save money. They do. Um, drive down some unnecessary utilization. They get a little bit smarter about some things. And I think that's a a laudable goal. I don't think that the fee-for-service financial incentives are the big reason why we keep spending more and more money. We Mm -hmm. keep spending more and more money because we keep inventing new things to do and we keep getting sicker and sicker as a population. The other uh, thing I wanted to point out, this is the last audio clip that I have to, to share with you, was regards to drug prices. And Senator, and we talked a little bit about how drug com- a lot of drug companies' profit is not you know necessarily to greedy CEOs. It's a, a lot of it goes into innovation. Uh, Dr. Gaffney, uh, the Harvard University professor, uh, was asked about uh, the cost of drugs. If we lower the cost of prescription drugs in this country to what other countries pay. Anyone have any idea how much savings there would be in our system, Dr. Gaffney? I mean, the CBO estimate was about a 30% reduction in drug prices. Other countries pay probably on average about half as much. Uh, You're talking about more than $100 billion. Uh, 
And it did mention in the Medicare for All bill that there would be an incentive to purchase generic drugs as opposed to name brands. One, how is it that other countries are able to, if it's true, that other countries can get drugs for half the price of the United States? Why is that? And, um, and yeah, we'll start with that. Why is that the case? Oh, because in most other countries, they're, the government is the purchaser of the drugs, and they have the ability to set the price they're going to pay for it. Um, they, it's true. They typically set it a whole lot lower than what we pay for it in this country, even if the drug was made here and, and invented here. Um, so they set that price. They set it lower than what we do. And because they've got the ability to say, and if you don't want to sell us at that price, fine, we won't buy that drug. And we'll keep that drug away from our, our population. So it's absolutely true that drugs get sold at different prices, um, just like a physician sells their services to you or I coming in with a Blue Cross Blue Shield card for a different amount than they sell that exact same visit to a Medicare patient. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like, you know, there's other subsidies that go on within the government um, that happen. So the question becomes, if we do this and we cut 30% out of drug prices, what are those manufacturers going to do? Um, existing drugs, they're going to continue to manufacture because, um, you know, they've already got all the research cost in that. Now it's just a manufacturing cost. But are they going to start developing new? Or are they going to say, no, nah, I don't need to spend that money developing a drug. There's no longer a payoff. Mm-hmm. Well, Ron, this has been really good. I'm glad we spent some time diving into this today. And I'm hoping that if anyone has any uh, questions or comments, you're more than welcome to tweet myself or Ron. I'm at Radio Handley, and Ron is at Ron Howergan. And you can also send us an email to flatlining at substack.com or comment on this post at flatlining.net. Ron, thanks for sitting down and talking a little bit about Medicare for All with us today. Thank you. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. For more information, go to Flatlining.net and be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also comment, share, and give us five stars so that more people can find the Flatlining Podcast. For Ron Howard and I'm Matthew Handley. Have a great week.